anything that remains exactly as it is will soon be outdated because the only thing constant is change. So I think that there is a way for us to be in still water, to congratulate ourselves for doing good work to get the water still in the first place, but to not have to mean that still water means that we're not prototyping and imagining um, new ways of being before we require ourselves to be locked into those ways of being. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben Tapper, and today I am joined by the enigmatic Matt Burt. Good to have you, Matt. Enigmatic or enigmatic? I don't know. I'm tired. It just is the first thing that came to my mind. (laughs) (laughs) So you get to pick. I will take it. I will take it. Everyone likes to be mysterious, right? That's right. That's right. Today, we have a conversation. I mean, we're excited about pretty much every conversation we have, but today's conversation is cool because it's a return guest. So y'all get to hear a convo that we have with Reverend Dr. Gabby Kudjo-Wilkes. But Matt, before we jump into that, I'd love to know how these concepts that we discuss later of innovation versus tradition, how those come up in your work, if at all. Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that question, Ben, because it's not as if I get a lot of congregations calling up or emailing and asking about innovation. Like, how do we innovate? How do we change in a big way? Usually the questions I get are much more practical in nature and are more the felt needs of everyday congregational life. Thinking about a new curriculum, perhaps, or asking about, hey, we're thinking about a capital campaign. We've never done one. Can you get us some information on how to do that? So there are very practical questions, but sometimes in dialogue with congregations, you realize that there are questions behind the question Mm. or the question about innovation really is tied up in how do we engage young people? So that's a specific ask. How do we engage young people? But the answer to that question has a lot of kind of higher level concepts behind it that it depends what, you know, your congregation's demographic, your region's demographic. Why is it you think young people aren't? attaching themselves to your congregation. So there's a lot behind it. And it's interesting, when we hold education events, the very practical questions draw a lot of attendees. But when we get into questions about innovation, or we're actually going to talk about traditioned innovation, we held an event on that with Dave Odom a number of years ago. And when you get to those kind of higher level theoretical concepts, attendance is much, much lower. So it's interesting because I don't know that organizations and human beings when you're stuck in the day-to-day are equipped to think about the higher level theoretical pieces Mm. because you're just asking the questions about how do we basically get through the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. And those tend to present themselves as a lot more practical. So I think a lot of congregations, the question behind the question is about innovation, but they're not themselves recognizing or framing it in that way. Does that resonate with your experiences with congregations, Ben, as you talk with them? Yeah, it definitely does. You know, the most direct examples of innovation that I experienced as a case manager came during the pandemic and still come when congregations are trying to figure out how to live stream and adapt their worship or upgrade their technology. Like that still is a push for congregations. But there are also other more subtle examples like congregations wanting to know how do we become more racially diverse? What does it mean to attract people from different ethnic or cultural backgrounds What does it mean to be intentionally thinking about how we craft our community experiences so that they appeal to our black congregants, our white congregants, and our Latinx congregants? What do we do around bilingual offering of services or materials? Do we have an interpreter? Do we just hold a bilingual service and an English-speaking service? I think all of these are questions that deal with innovation, that deal with uncoupling from certain traditions. But what I was going to say was in some ways, almost every case I touch deals with innovation. 
I don't think that's accurate. At least I don't think it's within the spirit of the conversation that we have with Reverend Dr. Wilkes, you know, Mm -hmm. because I don't think change and innovation are necessarily synonymous. So every grant I get might represent a change a congregation or a church is wanting to engage with, but that doesn't mean the change is inherently innovative. Mm -hmm. So there is some nuance to that that's important, but innovation does come up at least semi-regularly in my cases. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction, Ben, about change versus innovation, that, you know, you can make a lot of changes, but they might not be innovative at all, and it may even potentially be harmful. Yeah. So keeping that distinction in mind, I think, is good and right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Matt. And, you know, in terms of the concept of innovation, I also think it would be important for our audience to know that the interview she did for us in season one dealt with congregations adapting to the pandemic. So if you get a chance, go back and listen to season one, episode four, and hear what Gabby was thinking and talking about in the heat of the pandemic, then come and listen to the conversation today. Because in some ways for me, I think it's really one conversation that just happened to take place within a span of two years. And that is kind of cool. So if you get a chance, listen to that earlier episode, and it might provide even more context and framing for what you're going to hear today. All right. So next up is Reverend Dr. Gabby Kujo-Wilts of Double Love Experience Church. everybody. Welcome back to our interview with Reverend Dr. Gabby Kujo Wilkes. We want to make sure to respect the title. Welcome, Dr. Wilkes. Thank you so much, Matt. I think this is the first podcast I'm doing post my doctorate, so I appreciate it. It feels good. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And it is wonderful to have you back. I believe this is your third appearance on the Center for Congregations podcast, which because I'm a data nerd, that is roughly between 5 and 6% of the total number of Center for Congregations podcasts. So we really like you. That's so cool. And I like you guys too. I love that. I enjoy being with you. We're so excited to have you here to talk about really the subject matter of your doctoral research, which was innovation in congregations. And I'm probably not giving even close to proper due for what it was. So please tell us about what that doctoral work was about. Yeah, absolutely. No, you actually hit it on the head. I am a pastor whose first profession was brand strategy and working as a publicist and doing work with gospel artists. And so I never really turned that off when I came into the pastoral ministry in 2013. I basically just brought it with me. But it took me a long time to figure out how to have language that honored both of my disciplines and that would be useful for other folks who were doing similar work in their churches. And so um, I actually did my doctorate of ministry at Duke Divinity School. And our dean of the school is a guy named L. Gregory Jones. He's phenomenal. He is now the president of Belmont University as of about a year or so ago. He made that transition. But while I was at Duke, he was there and he had done a ton of research on what he calls Christian social innovation. And he talks about it from kind of a Wesleyan lens. He's a United Methodist minister, but he did a lot of work in tandem with the then dean of the Duke Business School, Greg Deese, who many deem as the father of social entrepreneurship. He was a dean of the Fuqua School of Business many years ago. Brilliant guy. He is now deceased, but while he was living, he just made so many impacts. And so Greg, my advisor, they're both named Greg, my advisor, Greg, my doctoral advisor, Greg, talks about these conversations that he would have. And Greg from the business school would tell Greg from the div school, I promise it's not a joke, it's real. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, so a priest and, <laughs> and a rabbi walking to a coffee shop. <laughs> really, these two Duke deans, you know, start going out to lunch together. And Greg from Fuqua, Fuqua School of Business, begins to talk to Greg from Duke Div saying, you know, the church was really on the cutting edge of social entrepreneurship at the turn of the century. What happened? He's like, you all were opening up hospitals and schools and, you know, like all of this work was being done for the good of the community out of this lens of faith-based work and what the church presumed to be, you know, kind of the arms and feet of Christ and all that. And so, you know, kind of, they had this back and forth dialogue. It shows up in this book that Greg Jones wrote called Christian Social Innovation. And it really becomes this kind of conversation point back and forth about the, just the way that the church really can be innovative and not only can be, but has been. 
in ways that we've gotten so accustomed to now that we sometimes forget just how innovative it was and how broad it was in regards to the kinds of people that it reached. So I read that book before I started my demon. And so I was like, wherever Greg Jones is, I need to go because here's finally language for what I think I intuitively had been doing my entire career. I hadn't really found a way to translate that to congregations and to communities. So my work really builds on Greg's work. I take a really close look at historically black congregations in particular, because a lot of times I find that those congregations are doing innovative work, but haven't been exposed to the same language that perhaps the discipline is using to to talk about the work. And so sometimes they miss out on grants, they miss out on opportunities because they're not describing the work they're doing with the language. So that was, you know, rhetoric was very important to me. Language is very important to me. And then I kind of followed the model. So my doctoral advisor was Greg Jones, but we had to have two. And so my secondary advisor was actually a business school professor, Keisha Cutright, who's a consumer manager, behavior specialist from School of Business in the marketing department. And the two of them guided me through my work and really helped me to have a lens of both the business sector and a theological lens, but also an innovation lens. And so now I continue to do the work I've been doing, but I feel like I'm better equipped with different research, different case studies, different language to help translate why that work is important. So I was going back through our records, Dr. Wilkes, to figure out when you were on the podcast last. And the episode that I came across was early on. It was season one, episode four, kicked off a cliff. So we were like in the heart of the pandemic. And in that episode, you talked about the changes, the adaptations, the innovation, if you will, that you were noticing congregations were adopting as the pandemic was raging. And I'm wondering about the links in that. I don't know where you were in your doctoral process when we were having that conversation, but it sounds like there's a direct link there. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. At that time, I was in year two of my course of study. But I think that what the pandemic has given us is a real-time case study of how all institutions adapt when they're forced to, right? I mean, I remember, go back to March 15th, 2020, one of the ways that we knew we were in something different was you started to have like the NBA and Major League Baseball and like all of these like institutions that don't change for anybody shutting down. You know, Harvard was the first school to tell students don't come back from spring break. You know, when you have that kind of disruption from institutions at a high level, including churches, it just requires everybody to think differently. And so I think that from the kicked off the cliff, which all of us, all of us across the globe were kicked off this cliff into doing a different form of our work, whatever your work might have been, to now, fast forward to 2022, we've kind of been off this cliff for two years. What I found is people are creatures of habit. We all are the church, but everybody. And so, you know, if if we say two years ago, we were kicked off a cliff, then right now we've all been making a home in this area that the cliff dropped us in. And we basically made that home our new norm. And that new norm has now become tradition. And so it doesn't take long for tradition to form. It's very fascinating. You talk about innovation. My subtitle for my dissertation is keeping it beta because if we are not intent on continually revisiting core concepts and ways in which uh, what we're doing serves us well or does not, we begin to get stagnant even from something that was once innovative. So two years ago, where folks were willing to innovate and think about different things, you know, I worry that in 2022, whatever folks kind of workshopped out in their communities from probably about March to November of 2020, I would wager that most people are still doing the exact same thing that they worked out in those six months, two years later. Problem is the world has changed. The rhythms have changed, right? So while people still prefer to work from home, they may even prefer to be at church from home, it's a different context. We're not all quarantined by requirement, right? People are going out for the things they want to go out for. And so the program we were doing when everybody was experiencing the same limitations, it needs to shift. Because what we are all experiencing now is variations on the same existence within a pandemic. But most of our institutions, and I say institutions because it's not just the church. I'm not just harping on the church. All of our institutions have found that they found a new home under that cliff. They don't want to disrupt because it took them so long to figure it out. But the true heart of innovation 
is even in that new home, still assessing it and saying, wait a minute, how can we make this a little bit more amenable to the conditions we have now than we did two years ago. And so I'm really on a case for churches alongside my own of really being clear that we can't remain stagnant in whatever innovative ideas we had that worked throughout this time period because the world is continually evolving. And so our innovative approaches to our work needs to evolve as well. That's a lot easier said than done. So what are the ways that a congregation can begin to assess the innovation that it has done in recent days, and then also begin to identify where some of that innovation has stalled or stagnated? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. So there's a concept called traditioned innovation. It's one actually coined by Greg, and it's one that I build on in my work. And it's this idea that we are never starting from scratch. Even when we feel like our backs are against the wall and we have no options, we're still building on something that has come before us that helps us think about how to reimagine, right? You can't reimagine without first imagining something, right? You can't grasp something without first seeing it. So I think that that's one approach that any church that's looking to assess what they've been up to in the past couple of years should do. Look at the new traditions you've created feel comfortable calling them traditions, right? If you had traditions of gathering on Zoom, if you had traditions of gathering on Facebook or YouTube, if you had traditions of, you know, calling your members once a month or once a week or what have you, whatever those rhythms were that you created, revisit those. But then ask the hard questions of, is this still working? Right. So I will give you all, you know, an example of my own church. I'm a church planter in New York City. We're coming up on three years as a weekly worshiping congregation, four years as a church altogether in November. Thank you. Thank you. And so we reopened for weekly worship in September of 21. Prior to that, we had been having solely virtual church. It was still fresh worship every week, but folks could only experience it virtually. Only our staff was inside the sanctuary. We reopened in September of 2021. Then we had to close again, December of 2021, because there was an uptick in the pandemic in ways that it seemed harmful to gather. Closed until February, reopened February 2022. From February 22 until right now, we have struggled. We have struggled with physical presence because people had spent a year and a half, almost two years of receiving digital pastoral care, of receiving fresh worship services, of receiving fresh word, of being in virtual community with one another. And that rhythm worked for them, right? And so when we flung our doors back open and said, hey, everybody, you can come back now. When we did it in September, everyone was excited because that was the first time we had opened since we've been closed for 15 months. But having to close two months later because of the variant uptick meant that when the, by the time we opened back in February, honestly, they were good. <laughs> I think they were kind of like, we tried this, we had to close again. You know, I could just stay online. <laughs> and so we really spent from February until the end of the summer trying to throw different things against the wall. And we had big moments within our church that I would have thought would bring people out, you know, things like Easter Sunday service, you know, we had an Easter tea and we were like, come in your Sunday best and wear your hats and, you know, let's have tea and crumpets. And, you know, some came out, but not the magnitude that we anticipated. We licensed a cohort of clergy who had been being trained by us during the pandemic and they were giving their trial sermons and being licensed in the church. That is normally a wall to wall worship experience. Their families came, and so it was full, but I was looking with my pastoral eyes, and I'm like, I don't see my members. Like, it's full because their family and friends are here, but I don't see my members here. My members were still in the comments. And so I say all that to say that we had to do the hard work of realizing that this asset that we think is physical church may not still be an asset to people in the ways that it once was. And as a new church, that's really hard because we don't, we don't have that much data to go on anyway, because we're still in the church. And so I think, you know, one of the ways that we assess is by not lying to yourself, take the data for what it is. Cause I mean, you know, clergy can always, we can overly spiritualize anything and make a reason for why things are as they are. But I had to splash some cold water on my face and stop giving excuses 
and really start dealing with what was happening, what the trends were, where the people were, and try to imagine, okay, how do they want church now? Because we remember everybody was disrupted for over two years. And so what our desires were also disrupted and what we used to desire may not be the same. And so just going back, because perhaps it's healthier to do so for us, it didn't work. And for colleagues of mine who I've spoken to, their percentages are different because they have larger congregations, but the data is the same, right? So I think the percentage of what's happening is similar, but you may feel it differently in a smaller congregation like us than you would in a megachurch congregation, right? But the trends are similar. So I think you have to pay attention to what's happening. And true innovation comes out of being realistic, right? It comes out of just like, yeah, we got to do something different before it's too late. Right. If you wait until things completely fall apart to innovate, you're behind the curve. Thank you for sharing that authentic story from your experience, from Double Love's experience. I mean, the flip side of that is that it sounds like you were able to create meaningful sense of community virtually and that that has stuck. Right. So you did what you did really well, which is making it harder to transition. Yeah. And so there's beauty in that, I think. And I just want to name that. And I love that you asked the question, like, how do they want church? It's such a crucial question, but not one that I hear folks ask all the time. And so I love that you're asking that question. And I'm wondering, as you're sitting in that, what are you learning about how your folks or the folks you want to attract actually want church? Yeah, I'm learning some lessons that I did not anticipate. Right. We did a pop up worship service series in July. This is the second year we've done it. And one of the responses I got from a team member, a lay person, you know, unpaid volunteer who's been basically over our hospitality team. When I debriefed with her, asking her, you know, how she felt about it and whatnot, her response to me was, it was great. Can we keep doing pop-up church? And I was like, forever? <laughs> like, I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? We just did a month of pop-up church. <laughs> And she was like, actually, yeah, like, do we have to have a physical location? She said, I really think that it could be interesting. She was like, you and Pastor Andrew are on the road a lot anyway. Like, can you take double love with you? And this is from somebody who is not churched the way we like to talk about church, meaning she didn't grow up in church. She was attracted to the work that we did and, you know, ended up getting deeply involved. But her comments are always helpful because they don't come from this place of like what you can or cannot do. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to listen. I mean, I'm just an innovation person, right? And that just like, I was like, but do you mean take it with, what are you talking about? And she reminded me that when we were closed, there were times when my husband and I would literally put our church banner in our car because we were on a road trip somewhere and we would pop up our banner and go live. Because at that point, it didn't matter where we went live from. They're all watching from the same place. And so she reminded me of that. And I was like, yeah, but that's when we closed. And she was like, Yes. And she kind of like, you know, I know she wanted to be respectful. So she kind of like didn't say more. But as I heard myself limit (laughs) my own capacity for what we could do, I realized what she was saying, which is if folks are at home anyway, that doesn't have to matter. Right. And so for me, you know, as much as I am pro innovation, I had to realize I have a personal connection to a physical location as a church planter. One of the first points of success is that people ask you about is, do you have a building? Do you have a place that's yours? Do you have, you know? And so I use that as an example. It felt extreme to me, but the more I sat with it, I realized maybe it's not because if they're already not coming physically back for her, she was like, that gives us an opportunity to invite people to different things where we may be, gives us a different opportunity to kind of move around a lot. And those that already weren't coming, all they got to do is click on YouTube anyway and see where you are. And so that's an example of what I'm hearing. And so I think what I took from that was the experience of kind of going to where people are as opposed to people coming to where we are was significant for her. That's what I took, regardless of how we implemented or not. That's what I heard. Right. And this idea that like the world has really changed and the ways the world has changed. Some of the things that are still stagnant have to kind of reassess. And so I don't know what we'll do with that information. I just got that feedback a month and a half ago and I'm still sitting with it. But I think the feedback that has been coming back from people is we really like what's happening online. We do still value in person, but in person does not have to be tethered to the worship service. So maybe it's to a dinner or a meal. Maybe it's to a baby shower 
for a member or a wedding or what have you, like these things that are like physical and community, but the weekly Sunday rhythm of not only worship, but seeing one another just doesn't, for my people at least, seem to hold the same space in their hearts as it did pre-pandemic. That's absolutely fascinating to me because it makes me think about how what we have come to know as church in the United States has become so building centric. And this is almost a rediscovery of, no, it's the community. And Ben's heard me bang this drum a lot. And I think I've done it a number of times on this podcast about the etymology of the word church and you know what the New Testament scriptures actually use as the term. It means the people. Yeah. And so it's a rediscovery of what it means to be the people who are in community with each other without worrying about what's the building where we gather or whether we even gather in a building. And so it seems like what you're saying is the pandemic has taught us a lot of tools that now we need to think about how do we effectively deploy those tools in new ways on a consistent basis. Is that accurate? And how do we not throw away the tools that we sharpened at the height of our uncertainty? Mm. Because at the height of our uncertainty, most of our churches were the most innovative. So now that we think we figured it out, that's where the possibility to become stagnant is so alluring that I'm wanting us, myself included, to be mindful of that we don't fall back into trends and norms that don't serve us. I want to shift us a little from the practical. You've been really great at grounding us in the practical realities, Dr. Wilkes, to kind of more theoretical. Mm -hmm. So I'm returning to something you said when we started this conversation, which was we want to be innovative. We don't want to be stagnant. And when you said the word stagnant, my mind made an immediate juxtaposition. I pictured stagnant water and then I pictured still water. And I started thinking about what the difference actually is and how sometimes in the life of a leader. You better preach, Ben. You better <laughs> preach. This is a whole sermon. <laughs> it happens every now and then. It just comes out, right? I love it. <laughs> sometimes you do need to find those moments of stillness for yourself, for your community. And that involves like understanding a healthy pace. But you're right. You don't want to be stagnant. So as a leader, as an innovator yourself, can you talk about how you juxtapose those two ideologies of being stagnant versus learning to be still? Yeah, absolutely. I'll take it from a couple of concepts that I deal with in my research. So there are two concepts. They're really business concepts. But they can be applied to the church. And I do apply them to the church. One is this concept of design thinking. The other is the concept of human-centered design. Both are basically approaches to, in layperson's terms, how to brainstorm and try things out well, right? Human-centered design intends for whatever is done to be mindful of the fact that you are actually engaging human beings and not some sort of inanimate object that you can just move around and, and alter their lives and see what the data gives you, right? So human-centered design reminds you you're dealing with the messiness and the beauty of humans, of human beings, which means anything that we're trying, remember, we're impacting people's lives. So we're not just like poking and prodding at people for the sake of a science project, right? Design thinking has a few phases in it. One of the phases that design thinking has in it that is necessary for design thinking to work is the prototyping phase. The prototyping phase is the phase past the brainstorming phase where you're actually trying out whatever it is you've brainstormed, and you're trying it out for the purposes of seeing, does this work, right? Which means that success or failure is not connected to whether it works. Success or failure is connected to your ability to move through the design thinking stages enough to actually effectively prototype something well, and to then go back to the drawing board. And the idea is that you keep doing this process as many times as you need to until you land on something that you feel is generative for your community and then you implement it, right? So when you think of a company like Google, when Google first came out, I was in high school. It was in the early 2000s. And for about two years, they had the words beta, B-E-T-A, under their search engine. But Google was still being utilized. At the time, it was like in competition with Yahoo. And I'm going to date myself this search engine called Ask Jeeves. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. And so Yahoo had everything, you know, on lock. You know, they had the news, they had the entertainment, they had everything else. But Google, which said beta for about two years at the bottom, Google prided itself on kind of this really streamlined answer to your question, 
right? Because with Yahoo, you kind of had to wade through all this other stuff, which at the time we thought was beneficial, but sometimes it got a little frustrating. And then with Ask Jeeves, it was strictly question generated, right? So it was like, you have a question, we'll answer it. But it wasn't so much also just like leading you to places of data. Google kind of met the middle. But this idea of it being beta gave Google permission to prototype, gave Google permission to say, we're not completely done with this concept that we think will work. We told you it's beta, it's right there. So if you have some sort of error or issue, well, we warned you that we're still working out these kinks, right? I would offer that the still water can happen alongside the prototyping phase, right? I would offer that the still water of, you know, we know that what we are doing is valuable and generative and beneficial, but we are human beings who are messy and beautiful. And while we're in this still water, let's try some things out, right? When you say still water, I also think about like a kiddie pool, right? So I'll give you a quick story. My mother's birthday is six days before mine. So we always celebrate back to back. So I was in Dallas for her birthday, end of August. And we went to a resort that had a lazy river. And there's these inflatable rafts. Now, mind you, my mother is 73. I am 37. So we are not spring chickens, but we're like, let's do the lazy river. Why not? So we try to get into these inflatable things. And I promise every time we get in them, we fall over. Like, I don't know how the kids just have so much control. We had none. We literally are like trying to figure this out for so long. Then we realize the lazy river is three feet. And I finally was like, mommy, we could just stand up if we, if we feel like we're falling over, like, we'll be okay. And then once we had that like epiphany, we went down the lazy river and sure enough, like when we were getting wobbly, we just stood up, right? So if we think about still water and the same concept of like a kiddie pool or water that you can stand up in, the beauty is you can be in a prototyping mode of trying new things like us trying to figure out these inflatable water wrappers, right? But, but the stakes are not as high because you know that you have a baseline of security, a baseline of stability, a baseline of, to use that Google example of like, this is what we're working with, what we told you all, we're not quite in the next phase of this, you know? And so I think that still water could be this opportunity where, okay, we wrapped our head around some issues and some areas that we want to innovate and we're going to try this out, but everything is not at stake. We've not mortgaged our building on it. We've not emptied our bank account on it. Like we have this kind of stillness and this capacity to be the church and to meet the needs of our people and to disciple our folks and to preach and to teach and to serve. But also the waters are still enough we're not the height of the pandemic. The waters are still enough for us to stand up if we get a little wobbly, but let's see what we can prototype, right? Stagnant waters are, I'm not moving. Nothing will get me to move. I am afraid that if I make one step, everything falls apart. So it's just going to remain exactly as it is, right? And as we know, anything that remains exactly as it is will soon be outdated because the only thing constant is change. So I think that there is a way for us to be in still water, to congratulate ourselves for doing good work, to get the water still in the first place, but to not have to mean that still water means that we're not prototyping and imagining um, new ways of being before we require ourselves to be locked into those ways of being. That's good. Thank you. Well, I want to highlight the fact that Reverend Dr. Gabby Kujo-Wilkes, I love saying that, will be with us for education events coming up in November. So we've got one on November 10th at 10.30 a.m. Eastern and one on November 16th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. And this will be an opportunity to hear more about this topic of innovation. And she's going to share more in a more interactive environment. I believe we're doing Zoom meeting, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to see faces. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you can make it to those events, you'll be on camera and voice and able to interact with her directly. And we're very much looking forward to that. So where can people find you, your congregation, your work on social media or online? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm at GabbyKudjaWilkes.com. That's all things me, work, ministry, coaching, the whole nine. And I'm at Pastor Gabby C. Wilkes on Instagram or Gabby C. Wilkes on Twitter. And if you would like to visit my church, we are in Brooklyn. <laughs> we may be popping up places. Who knows? We'll stay tuned, find out. <laughs> We're at Double Love Experience on Instagram and Double Love NYC on Twitter. Awesome. So we'll make sure to post those in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, for sharing with us what you've learned over the period of your time in your doctoral program. And we look forward to hearing more in November. Thank you. It's always great to be with you all. 
All right. That was Reverend Dr. Gabby Kudjo Wilkes. Ben, what are some things that stood out to you from that conversation? So, you know, as I mentioned before we started talking, it was neat connecting the dots between this conversation and the one we had with Gabby in 2020. I think as I sift through everything we talked about, the thing I keep landing on and returning back to is still versus stagnant. And maybe it stood out to me because of my personality. I am someone, well, in part because of my trauma, but generally I'm someone who likes to be very fast paced. If I see something that needs to be changed, I want to do it immediately. And I don't always have a lot of patience. And so I can lose sight of stillness and the importance of appropriate pace when pursuing innovation and transformation. And I know there are others who have the opposite problem. They can be so endeared, coupled, married to tradition and the way things have always been done that the idea of innovating and changing, even if it could be great, is just really terrifying and hard for them to manage. And so they'd stay in a place instead of moving. And so I liked playing with and teasing out what it means to have a spirit of innovation without becoming too fast paced, without sacrificing people unnecessarily, without causing undue turmoil and duress, while also resisting that stagnation. And and Gabby unpacked that beautifully with her innovative mind and gave me additional lenses to look at it. In my own mind, when I see or hear the word stagnation, I think of stagnant water in like a forest or in the wild and it's got kind of moss on it. It looks kind of cloudy. It's got mosquito larvae in it and it's just dirty and generally not safe to consume, right? There's inherent risk there, risk of sickness or death. When I think of still water, I think of water being clear, water sustaining and nurturing life. I think of the phrase still waters run deep. I think of Psalm 23, he will lead me beside still waters. You know, there's like a nurturing and a sustaining power of still waters and stillness. And so that tells me that when we can find that appropriate pace of innovation, that we can be nurtured, even if it doesn't feel like we're moving as fast as we can, there is still a nurturing and a sense of movement that is generative and life-giving. But when we resist innovation, it's easy to become stagnant and stagnation can ultimately lead to sickness and death. And so I just continue to be really fascinated by that juxtaposition as we talk about innovation in organizational spaces and in congregational spaces. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up in the interview. And then again, talking about that here, Ben, because I think if you get too far on the spectrum of innovation, you might have a situation like navigating rapids. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it could be problematic. And I think she even talked about this in the interview when she talked about, I can't remember the specific term that she used, but basically testing, right? Mm -hmm. You're testing things out. And testing usually means on a smaller scale. So you're not just drastically changing everything all of a sudden you're taking small steps and testing things out to try whether they work or not. And that's such an important piece of innovation that you're not just turning the whole world upside down in one motion, but you are taking measured steps towards change. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. Measured steps towards change. Yeah. It's hard for me personally to understand and conceptualize what measured steps are, the older I get and the more I'm able to learn from leaders. You know, one of those leaders, it's on our staff, McKenzie. He's been a great resource for me in helping me understand how to gauge and appreciate pace, even if it's not moving the way I think it should. And so I keep coming back to my own wrestling with this, which I guess is the sign of a good interview, right? Like you find something in it that challenges you and makes you want to keep thinking and turning it over and makes you want to grow. And so kudos to... Reverend Dr. Wilkes for kind of inspiring that within me in this conversation. And I do want to switch gears a little. I almost I almost called it out while you were talking in the interview, but I didn't want to interrupt your flow because it was too good. And I, for those that don't know me, I wouldn't say, at least my partner doesn't say I'm a comedian. I do think I have moments where I can be uh, decently funny though. And it's usually just kind of off the cuff stuff. And so Matt, I really wanted to comment and let the audience know that this was the first time in season four, that you brought etymology back into the podcast. We've been missing it for an entire season. You just like <laughs> abandon it and you just suddenly brought it back near the end of the season. And I don't know about the audience. I was ecstatic. I was so happy to have it back. So I just want to name that and thank you for bringing it back into the podcast. Ben, I think I think your memory's got to be faulty. There's no way that we're 19 episodes into season four and I haven't talked about etymology. It's just, it's not I, possible. I feel <laughs> confident that that is the case. <laughs> and it's a travesty. I agree. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad that someone appreciates my love for etymology. <laughs> I do. I do. 
And for those who aren't aware of what that means, that just means the origin of words. And, you know, words can shift and change over time. And so it's just understanding the original meanings and how sometimes those meanings can shift. Like I was actually thinking the other day about midwife. And it's like, why is it midwife? Why is it not like midperson? Because, mm-hmm. you know, but I went back and from the old English, mid meant with. So you're with the wife, which is what uh-huh. makes sense because the wife is the one birthing and therefore you are with the wife. And so it came up in a conversation as well that, you know, you can have male midwives because it doesn't mean that they're female. It means that they are with the wife. So anyway, look at that. Another etymology lesson. A twofer. You're catching this up. You're making up for lost time. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to. Yeah. Well, what stood out to me is something that we don't often talk about the Center for Congregations, Assumptions and Stances, but I think it's really relevant here that you have someone like Reverend Dr. Gabby Kojo Wilkes who is a minister, but is also someone who is intensely interested in how things work. And she talked about how she kind of melded her time and interests from the business world into the congregational space. And I think it's just a callback to the importance that that the Center for Congregations places on finding outside expertise. You are an expert on your congregation's own context. So you understand the people who attend. You understand the dynamics and the workings of what's going on in your congregation. But it's so important to couple that with outside knowledge and outside expertise. And even if, you know, this conversation and this topic isn't something that excites you or is important for you, you need to find those places that do speak into your experience, that you can find expertise that speaks into your congregational context. Because I think that is precisely what prevents stagnation whether that's new people who step into your environment who have new ideas or fresh eyes to see what's happening or whether it's people from other contexts that you listen to that it helps provide a different perspective. I found it fascinating that the Holy Post podcast, I'm an avid listener to the Holy Post podcast, and they're doing a special series. I don't remember the name of the series, but they're doing episodes that are basically what can specifically the conservative American church learn from the global church. And so they're talking to global church leaders and just how the differences in culture and perspective, but the sameness of faith can help rethink what it means to be a conservative Christian in America. And I just find that an absolutely fascinating conversation and discussion. So I think it's incumbent upon, and this is one of my lifelong passions. I mean, my role here has to do with education and I love being an educator, but it's so important that we all are lifelong learners to the best of our ability, that we take the time and the opportunity to get above the day-to-day and the specific concerns in the moment and find people to listen to who can speak on some of the higher level, more theoretical aspects of life that then inform how we understand our own specific congregational context. And I think that Reverend Dr. Wilkes just did that so well because she understands both pieces. And we're not all gifted in both of those spaces, and that's okay. But finding those people to listen to who are gifted in those spaces and learning from them in order to continue to grow in our own context, I just think it's so vital. And I mean, that's the primary reason why the Center for Congregations is here, why we do this podcast. We're trying to bring interesting conversations to you so that you can think about things. And it's not that we're trying to be prescriptive. We don't know your context and we can't know everyone's context, but we're hoping that in between them, the spaces of these conversations, you're learning things that are helpful in your community. And uh, that's really one of the key reasons why we're here. And so that's why I thought it was such a good interview because she's bringing that higher level theoretical conceptualization of things so that we can think about how does this make sense in the practice of our day-to-day experiences. That is incredibly well said, both about Reverend Wilkes and the purpose and our desires here at the center. You know, we're a resource and organization, so we want to help you expand your expertise, Mm -hmm. which is why we try to highlight different resources every episode of this podcast to point you in that direction of other experts that might help grow that expertise or add additional perspectives and value to what you already know about your congregation and your community. So in that spirit, let's jump into the resources Matt, you had a one or two you wanted to bring today. What do you want to start out with? Actually, I've got three. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Changing it up. It just kept growing as I thought about it. In light of what I was just talking about with the theoretical versus the practical, there's an interesting book by Franklin Covey called The Four Disciplines of Execution. The primary person who speaks on that is a guy named Chris McChesney, 
And I'll list the website in the show notes that has a short video on this. But basically, he describes the day-to-day of organizational life as the whirlwind. And there are four disciplines that it's important to work on in order to be able to rise above or step outside of that whirlwind in order to be able to think about lasting and meaningful change. I heard him speak a few years ago, and I was very impressed with the methodology. So I'm going to include that as the first resource. And it's just, again, a way to try to step outside of the day-to-day and be able to implement some kind of long-term lasting innovation and change in your congregational context. That sounds really, really crucial. And anyone that has served in a congregational context knows what that whirlwind can feel like. So Mm. I know that that will bless some folks and some of our listeners. I've only got one resource that I want to bring. and Slacker. (laughs) Well, I guess technically one. So I've only got one resource that I want to bring, and it's something that Gabby talked about during the interview, which was this concept of human-centered design. And I love the concept. It was new to me until we did a podcast episode on it, again, back in 2020 with Victoria Sun Esparza. And so I want to bring a company called In The Water Designs. This is a company run by Victoria Sun Esparza, and they specialize in helping organizations, which includes congregations, understand how to bring the principles of human-centered design into the specific context that these organizations are living within and working within. So if you want to know more about it, you can check out their website. But if you have some design work that you're doing, you know, a really easy example is, you know, you want to move the pews out of your sanctuary, but you're not quite sure the best thing to replace them with. Like maybe it'll be chairs, but what shape, what size, how do you need to reconfigure your worship area? Those are some of the questions that human-centered design can help answer. And so I'm going to put the company in the show notes, check them out, check out Victoria, and also check out that interview because Victoria unpacks this concept of human-centered design and how it might be used in a bit more depth in season one. So check that out. Season one, episode seven, human-centered design, exchanging pews for strollers. It's a really fun episode. And again, it provides a lot of useful information on the concept. So give it a listen. And you've got two more for us, Matt? Yeah, I wanted to bring really quickly, there's an article from Faith and Leadership. Reverend Dr. Wilkes talked about this in the interview, Tradition to Innovation. So there's a quick article about Tradition to Innovation. And as I mentioned on the front end of this, we had an event a number of years ago on this topic, and I think it's really powerful. I believe if I'm remembering right, it came out of a study of CEOs of large corporations that found strength in the traditions that helped them deal with radical change and helped them to innovate. And so it was utilizing the strength of their tradition and then using that for positive steps forward during some kind of difficulty. And this article specifically is focused on how does that apply to congregational life? So that's a really good article and a really interesting topic. The other one, I'm going to post a video to The Power of Positive Deviance, How Unlikely Innovators Solve the World's Toughest Problems. Our president, Tim Shapiro, is really into this topic of positive deviance. But the idea is that you step into an area that has an issue and you try to find those places where people or organizations are dealing well with that issue and then unpack what they're doing right to then help others be able to tackle that same issue. So it's a really interesting concept for, I think, for congregational leaders that, you know, maybe even looking at your own congregational context and asking, you know, who are the families or people that are doing really well in this context and what is it about them that is helping them do well and how do we then translate that to other people in this context? So it's based on a book, but, you know, just the video is just a brief introduction to that. And if that's something that you think you might be interested in, you may want to check out the book as well. I really thought for a second there you were about to call our president a positive deviant, which sounds like an amazing compliment. I just wasn't sure how he or some of our listeners would take it. So, but, but I was also <laughs> slightly disappointed you didn't go that route. It would have been entertaining. I'm just not as quick on my feet as you are, Ben. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. We're also going to link to Reverend Dr. Kojo Wilkes's doctoral dissertation on this topic. So if you want a deeper dive into the work that she did in her doctoral work, you can check out her dissertation. And as a reminder, she will also be doing a couple of ed events with the Center for Congregations, unpacking these ideas of innovation in a very interactive environment coming up in November. Yeah, thanks for that reminder, Matt. And we want to just also let you know that, again, one of the reasons we're here is to resource you. And so if you haven't yet checked it out, check out our Congregational Resource Guide. You can find that online at the 
crg.org. It's chocked full of thousands of resources on topics ranging from youth ministry to diversity, equity, and inclusion to creating a virtual worship experience and almost anything else you could think about that would apply to congregational life. So once again, check out the Congregational Resource Guide at thecrg.org. Yeah, and as a reminder, that is not a pay-to-play site. We are not playing favorites. These are things that we as consultants who work with congregations on a regular basis as we do research and find organizations or information that we think is helpful, we just identify and pick that up. So these organizations do not pay us to be on this site. These are things that we have independently identified. I don't want to say neutrally because I think there's maybe a myth of neutrality. <laughs> like mm-hmm. We really like these. But the reason we like them is because we have discovered them, not because they have come to us and there's some kind of relationship. So you can trust that these are things that we really truly think are helpful because of our day-to-day work with congregations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in the spirit of being helpful, we want to give a shout out to Jaden Lee, our audio engineer. Jaden, we appreciate the work you do on making this podcast sound great. And we also have to thank and appreciate the generosity of the Lily Endowment. It is their generosity that makes all of the work we do, including this podcast, possible. If you find this podcast helpful, we would love for you to share it with others and also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. That's the quickest way for other people to be able to find the podcast. Yes, and feel free to follow us on social media at the Center for Congregations on both Facebook and Instagram. And finally, we want to give a shout out to our listeners in LaPorte, Indiana. Thank you so much for your continued listenership. I really appreciate you listening because you are not far from where I grew up. I grew up in Maryville, so fellow Regionaires holding it down up there. Thank you for listening. And if you have any suggestions you want to leave for us, you can email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. For the Center for Congregations, I'm Matt Burke. And I am tired but energized. See you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.